This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club and this is your show. Another week goes by without any football, but we're still back for another week of talking about Manchester City. I'm David Mooney and I'm joined socially distantly by Richard Burns. Hello, David. And on this week's show, we're going to be looking through where we are with City and the coronavirus. Plus, we'll hear from one of the people behind the City fans supporting Food Bank's campaign and what's been happening since the postponements. We're talking City cliches, plus we'll dip into our archives to hear from former City CEO Gary Cook. And we'll take some questions in Ask the Panel as well. Richard, uh, so yeah, welcome to the show. Um, How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you, David. Uh, very odd to be uh, once again sat recording the podcast in a, a very different uh, location to yourself, but I'm at my laptop, headphones plugged in, and quite ludicrously, uh, I have two cushions outside of my laptop because you told me that that act is soundproofing. So, <laughs> not, yeah, sa- not quite soundproofing, it stops the echo of the room. That's the one, yes. Well, a little bit of echo. There's still sound- a little bit of echo, but you know, yes, we're not in a studio. Soundproofing would be ridiculous because that probably mean that you couldn't hear me. It's the yeah. opposite of soundproofing. Well, yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going down a rabbit hole that I wasn't expecting so early on. Um, let's bring it back round. Uh, the situation with the coronavirus in the UK has developed further since we last recorded a podcast. Uh, now, pubs, bars, restaurants, and cafes have been ordered to close by the government in order to cut down social contact. We're being asked not to leave our homes as well uh, to slow the spread of the virus. Uh, so, so Richard, I'm just. In terms of all of that, how, how are things in the Burns household? Uh, they're all right, thank you. Um, I'm still, although I don't intend to talk too much about work on the podcast, I, I still have to go out on a daily basis um, as I have been deemed, oh, not I, that's very grandiose, <laughs> my, pro, my profession um, and, and uh, people who do the job I do have been, uh, we've been deemed to be key workers. Um, and so I am still going out every day um, but obviously taking all necessary precautions but um, Mrs Burns is in a position where she can work from home which is very good um, so yeah we're we're okay and um, we've had a, a lovely FaceTime call with my parents this evening who live around the corner but yeah that's how we've got to do things um, and I'm very, very much looking forward to having a FaceTime call with my grandma, which is going to be something because she's quite a dab hand with the iPad, despite being mid 80s. So, uh, that, that's that's going to be fun. Excellent stuff. Uh, one thing I did want to say on the podcast is um, there's there's a lot of things on social media at the moment about uh, people who are finding finding it difficult because they have to stay in the homes for long periods and they're not getting the social contact that they would normally get. Um, if you are one of those people and you are listening to this podcast right now, uh, give the Blue Moon Podcast a shout on Twitter. We'll retweet you. We'll try and get other City fans involved and we'll try and get a little bit of, uh, of community spirit going on among City fans. Uh, so do get in touch. Don't don't feel that you're, um, that, that, that you're getting lonely and suffering on your own when there are lots of other people who are listening to this who could also be chatting to you and chatting to you about City as well. Um, Richard, uh, there, there is a lighter side to all of this as well. Because have you seen any of the stay-at-home challenges that I've been doing the rounds? Um, I think the only one that I have seen, uh, and I do worry about where this is going, but the, the <laughs> one that I've seen the most of um, is the toilet roll kick-ups. Oh, yes. Um, and I know others are springing to mind, but I don't know, maybe if you tell me what they are, they'll jog my memory, but it's... 
That's the that's the only one I can think of. Well, that, that's good because that's the only one I was really bothered about. Um, right. Because at this stage, what I'd like to do is launch the Blue Moon Podcast Toilet Roll Kick Up Challenge. Oh dear. Okay, so um, everybody that appears on the podcast, I'm gonna I'm gonna bend their arm and try and get them to to have a go at doing it live on the podcast. See how many you can get. You get one attempt. One attempt. One attempt, and if you muck it up, you muck it up. All right. I earlier on today had a go at it. I've set the benchmark at three. Okay, three was my was the best I could do. I can't do a kick up with football. Right, I'm preempting where this is going, David. You're going to ask me to do this so that people can hear it, aren't you? Yes. Right. How do how are we to believe that you got such a lofty? <laughs> number if you didn't um, does, is there audio uh, there isn't audio i mean i could have uh, the, the thing is i don't want to have another go now and do better than three mm. but there's a risk you do worse and people would hear it i i understand david don't worry i see what uh, do i really do i have to go and get a toilet roll you don't have to no <laughs> we all we all know we all know what's going on so it's fine have you got one there to hand um, yes, I can reach over and grab one. Excellent. Right. Uh, this is Richard Burns, your your attempt um, for the Blue Moon Podcast leaderboard uh, in your own time. Take it away. Give us a count as well as you do it. Oh, right. Okay. So that requires multitasking. So my headphones are off. Yep. You can't hear me now. I could say anything I want about him. I can hear you saying something, David. I'm assuming it's very <laughs> insulting. Um, toilet roll is in hand. Here we go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It was eight. It was eight. It, I caught a ninth one on the way down, but I can't count as a kick up, so I'm having eight. Eight. Okay. Well, uh, what a bar to, to set. You've smashed my three there. Uh, <laughs> taking yourself to top of the leaderboard. I'm now in second place. Uh, we'll catch up with some more people um, in future weeks and, and see see how good your rate is in comparison to everybody else. How are you feeling? Quite good. Eight's a great city number, isn't it? As famously worn by Colin Bell. So I'm happy to uh, I'm happy to stick to that. I would have been happier to take the 100 to match the Centurion season and claim that as a city number. But anyway. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine if we just had people listening to you count to 100? <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea how which I would have loved to have loved that because um, that would in some way mug you off for saying it up in the first place. <laughs> this, is, this bit's supposed to sound rubbish, by the way. So, so there we go. Right. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen some of the stuff uh, during the rounds as well. That, like the idea that the season might be cancelled and um, <laughs> it was it was a question on how to decide uh, who should finish where in this season. And somebody suggested uh, they should do it based on how near the nearest Greg's store is. <laughs> so Newcastle will win the league, then I assume. Well, Newcastle have got about a billion Greg's. Newcastle's nearest Greg's is a, it's about 100 metres away from St. James's Park. <laughs> <laughs> but the best thing about all this that I found is it would leave City in the relegation zone in 18th, but their nearest Greg's is one of Greg's corporate HQ offices. <laughs> oh, so in terms of power, Greg's, it's, City would be really quite high up. Yeah, City are right up there. Um, but there's, uh, yeah, it's just not, a, it, it's it's something like uh, nearly a kilometre away. Ah, well, I'll tell you what, David, I hope that isn't how it's decided then. No, I'm, yeah, I think, I think <laughs> they'll have to come up with something a bit better than where the nearest Greg's is. The other, the other trivial uh, thing that came from that was uh, Aston Villa. Um, they have a weird situation where they have three Gregs that are pretty much equidistant from Villa Park. <laughs> 
So they're in the middle of this of this Greg's triangle. Um, this is the most absurd conversation <laughs> that I've ever had on the Blooming Podcast. The best bit about it is I, I don't know if, if if Americans or people overseas know what Greg's is. My favourite thing about this is, although I think you are treating it with um, the absurd contempt that it deserves. Um, you're also giving it a sort of analytical gravitas that I really wasn't <laughs> was not expecting. Well, there, there was another one um, that I, I can't remember what the criteria was, um, but it was severe. Uh, tweeted in uh, support of it because it, it made them champions. Um, but it, it was whatever the criteria was. Crystal Palace came out on top of everything, <laughs> so it's the idea that would just give Crystal Palace this season's uh, Premier League title. Um, yeah. No further comment. <laughs> um, there have been some uh, ex-City players as well, or, uh, and City players doing some uh, some stuff on social media about uh, how they've been staying indoors. Uh, did you see what Eddie Dzeko was up to? He, I think I know this one, he was watching the 3-2 win against QPR back. I don't know what he was doing alongside that, whether he was offering any sort of commentary or anything, but I know that he, he was watching it. Yeah, um, it, there's, there's a picture on Instagram of him of him watching it, and Nigel de Jong's commented on it, uh, saying, oh. great great game. That's, that's, I, I love the fact that Dzeko still loves City, because that it would have been so easy for that not to be the case, because he wasn't always appreciated in his time. And sometimes for good reason. But, um, <laughs> um, Three goals in 20-odd appearances in his God, final I, season. Yeah, I I love that he still thinks of City fondly. And I like to think that his highlight of his time at City is everybody else's highlight of his time at City. Lying down, Lying down at Everton. Down on the yeah. pitch at Goodison Park, yeah. <laughs> I like to think that sometimes when he gets in bed at night, he thinks, best do a Goodison. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, did you see what Sergio Aguero was up to? No, uh, he, he washed his hands. He taught us all how to wash our hands. Um, and, yeah. and you know what? Um, I, I, I can't now wash my hands without doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's like everything he else, else does. His technique was flawless. Sensational stuff. Uh, there is some serious stuff uh, to come out this week as well. We, it's not all fun and games. It's not all Greg's and, and hand washing and, and toilet <laughs> rolls. Um uh, we've not had any clarification yet whether City are going to pause the direct debit scheme for, for season ticket holders. Should they? Yes, it's a, it's a no-brainer. Um, and I don't care whatever arguments may be put up from... I mean, I don't think City have actually made any arguments yet, just to be clear. Um, but whatever arguments anybody might make from a business point of view or, um, you know, technically those, those games you've paid for them and those games are still due to go ahead. Forget it all. It does not matter. What we are talking about at the moment is um, a good number of those supporters will be very, very vulnerable right now. We'll be talking about people who, as a result of, uh, of the coronavirus pandemic, people who will have lost work, will have rent to pay, mortgages to pay, mouths to feed, and that Whatever it is, um, I, I don't pay the direct debit myself, so I, I don't know the amounts. But wh- whatever it is, any little relief that City could give to their supporters would be extremely welcome and extremely valuable. And we could, I don't think it's a stretch to say, we could literally be talking the difference between somebody being able to pay the rent um, or being able to pay the utility bills. And, and I think City, as 
football clubs still represent their community and, and City have a responsibility to the fans to do what to do right by them. So maybe it doesn't have to be automatically suspend payments, maybe it's give people the option so that if you're okay now you're not running yourself into a position in three months' time where you've got to pay it when you, things might be more difficult. But they've they've got to do something and it's this is across all football clubs as well. It's not just City, but obviously that's what we're here to talk about. It's just it's not okay that, that a decision hasn't been made there yet and, and that that option hasn't been made available. Um, what about those who have paid up front, though? If you cancel the... Di- if you, or if you, if you pause the direct debit, the, the people who paid up front are still out of pocket. But you've got to assume that that with that comes... Because I don't think anybody's saying that if these games do get played, that those on the direct debit scheme shouldn't pay for them. So the situation's the same, whereby if those games don't get played or they get played behind closed doors, then you have to come up with something else and then you have to work out how much you refund those who pay up front. And that, that, that to me, is a, it's, a, it's a separate situation because the season tickets that have been paid up front, like mine, I've paid for the 19 home games in the season. And that's, as it stands, that is still the case. But whilst football has been postponed, it just doesn't seem right to still be taking direct debits. I sort of... I, I'm not trying to be deliberately sort of um, contrary on your point because I, I do see I see where that argument is coming from, although I also understand you're not particularly making that argument. Um, but it's just, I don't see how it's okay to keep taking that money when the football isn't being played and we don't know when it will be played. I think you have to give people the option. If, if there's behind closed doors games, then I mean, is it a case of just suspending that last payment on, and giving that sort of money back to the people who've paid up front because all I'm thinking of is that isn't it something like 80% of the of the, of the direct debit payments have been made but there's a lot more than 20% of the football that would that would be cancelled or would be behind closed doors yeah I mean yeah when that's obviously um, looking at it on the the basis of what would have to be refunded um, and yeah, once you get into that, there's obviously there's a bit of working out to be done that I hadn't thought about it to that level. But the the basic fact remains that people shouldn't be paying for football that they can't watch. And at this point, there are people who haven't yet paid for some of that football, and that football isn't going ahead. So why continue to take the money when you could give them a break? It, it, I mean, it really is to me that simple. And then the rest you work out when it becomes relevant. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is as well, we don't know when the football will be back. So it's, exactly. it's yeah, it, it, it's it's going to go on. Um, just kind of on a, on a similar uh, point of view, as the coronavirus outbreak continues across the world, there are more and more challenges to daily life. People have been encouraged to cut social contact, and as a result, the economy is slowing. And there are some who have been unfortunate enough not only to face worries about the virus, but also about their jobs and sources of income. Earlier this season, we heard about Alex, who, along with his friends Nick, John, and Jill, have been collecting food at City Games to help support Manchester Central Food Bank. This week, City announced that, along with United, they would be donating a combined £100,000 to help support those who can't afford to eat. I caught up with Alex to get his reaction to the news. In the last week, um, ourselves and the United Fans Food Bank group have been in touch with both clubs um, because we started our own fan fund uh, to help the 19 food banks in Greater Manchester, the Trussell Trust ones, that is. Um, but after Liverpool um, donated to their fan-supporting food bank group, quite a sizable donation, £40,000, 
um, we decided that it was definitely worth getting City and United on board to do something similar because as much work as we do, you know, collecting before the games, trying to push for City to pay casual staff, etc., etc., um, we will never have the financial might uh, of either club, let alone when both get together. So the issue was that food banks obviously support the most vulnerable in our society, whether that's elderly people, disabled people, uh, single parents, young families, and even almost unbelievably, a lot of uh, NHS workers who suffer from in-work poverty uh, use the food banks in Manchester. Um, the issue is with the situation with the pandemic and that a lot of people are losing their jobs. Um, schools are kicking out, so it's strain on families. Um, particularly ones who normally get free school meals is increased greatly um, and without any sort of government safety net worth the name um, food banks are the first and only place they can go to get food especially as a lot of the cheap stuff is being bought by people panic buying as well um, so the food banks were under a lot of strain they are under a lot of strain they don't keep a lot of stock they're not supermarkets they work week to week um, and yeah, they're pretty much on their knees as it was. So they needed immediate sort of emergency financial funding. Um, and that's what we set out to achieve. And so uh, City and United have, have uh, donated, a, they've collected together £100,000 between them. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and that will be split evenly between the 19 Trussell Trust uh, food banks in Greater Manchester. Um, normally, our food bank groups work with one each. So the City one, ours works with... Manchester Central um, Food Bank and the United lot work with Manchester South Central. But, you know, obviously it's it's a pretty widespread crisis. You know, it's a global pandemic. So we couldn't really ignore all the other Trussell Trust ones in Manchester. Um, and that, you know, unfortunately, there's, there's also a lot of independent ones. Um, one we also work with called Emmeline's Pantry in town, who work specifically with vulnerable women uh, and you know that sort of thing there's other ones we've just had contact on twitter from one in hayward who's not part of the trussell trust and asking how we can help but you know the trussell trust ones are by far the the biggest um and they will get the most referrals of people who need food basically so we had to choose um and that's why we've done we've done with them in a weird way as well, it kind of shows that, uh, I mean, the motto of, of the group is, is um, hunger doesn't wear club colours. And this this shows that perfectly, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, and that's always been the goal. Um, so it started in Liverpool five years ago with a Liv two Everton fans and a Liverpool fan. Um, and yeah, from the very start with our group in particular, I, I don't know the timeline of the United group, but, you know, we started on New Year's Day with the game against Everton and the Everton lot came over with loads of donations to get us started. Um, since then, we've had fans from Crystal Palace, uh, from Chelsea and Arsenal, the women's games. They've come up with lots of donations. We've gone to Old Trafford for the derby just before everything got cancelled. Um, and it's it's really important um, because, you know, there's a lot of... There's a lot of football fans, let's be honest. Any Any given weekend in the Premier League, half a million people go to Premier League game. Millions more will go to lower league games or play non-league. Um, but tribalism in football keeps us all apart. And it means that clubs can impose ticket price rises. Um, they can charge obscene amounts for away tickets. Um, and they know that football fans won't get together. Um, so, yeah, fans supporting food banks 
aside from the obvious good work of food banks, we aim to work across uh, club boundaries and basically, you know, football fans have a lot of power uh, and it's time that we realised it. And I think getting Premier League clubs to work with our groups to help make sure people don't starve, basically, in a pandemic is, is a great is a great outcome of that. If we hadn't started doing it, if we hadn't started working with the United fans, if Liverpool and Everton lot hadn't started working together, none of this would have been possible. Um, and it makes you wonder what else we could achieve in future if football fans stop being assholes to each other off off the pitch. You look at, at the situation we're in at the moment, and you look at, at um, like the government message has always been, you know, don't panic, buy, don't, you, know, you don't, even with, when it comes to social contacts, we shouldn't be going out. And yet, you see the shelves are empty in supermarkets. You see people are still well up until the, the pubs and, and bars were closed uh, over the weekend. That they, that people were still going out. It's it's almost it, like it takes something like this to reinforce that message that that we can all help each other, doesn't it? Yeah, it does because I think a large, a large part of the problem is is people think bad things won't happen to them, um, but they do. You know, bad things do happen to people. Currently in this country, bad things mostly happen to people who have the less money. Um, but this pandemic, as you know, it affects everyone equally. It doesn't. You can't. You can't buy your way out of it. Um, and I think when you're faced with that sort of reality, yeah, people. Some people are going to panic buy and ruin it for everyone else. But then you've got stuff like Albert on the other side where, yeah, people are getting together. We've got the clubs on board, but we've also got a fans fund. Uh, and we've had so many donations into that. It's been really humbling, um, including, I would like to say as well, a, an enormous donation from the Liverpool and Everton fans, uh, both from Merseyside and unbelievably also the official Liverpool Sports Club in Japan have donated as well. So, yeah, it's people can get together and do something when they need to. The trick is to make people realise that, A, actually, things are better if we get together and do stuff when we don't strictly need to as well. Um, and that's always been a goal of fans supporting food banks, and it is of our little part of it as well. And uh, just finally now, how, how are you feeling now? Yeah, it's going really well. Um, I think, uh, aside from the fact that, like I said, we've with the help of everyone who's donated and with the help of the Liverpool branches and everyone else, we've stopped the 19 branches of the Trussell Trust food banks in Greater Manchester from collapsing in the short term. Um, and that is something which, it, you know, it's an incredible achievement. Um, but the work's not done, obviously. Um, the fact is that food banks exist in the first place because of government policies. They're not a naturally occurring thing. They don't have to exist. Um, the work is to make sure we stop them existing at some point in the future. Before the election in December, the Liverpool fans, they want, they had banners, they had everything saying, shut us down. Uh, the end goal of fan supporting food banks is to not exist. Nothing we do, whether it's food banks or supporting, like I mentioned, hopefully City are going to come up with a package to pay their casual staff. None of that should happen. We shouldn't have to be doing this. Um, the fact is, it's sort of lucky that this exists now in the pandemic because otherwise, you know, God knows how it would go now if there weren't community organisations like ourselves, like other ones, like Emmeline's Pantry that I noticed who have had to put the work in. Um, but in the long term, the goal is for no one to have to use food banks, for us to not have to do this, for people to not have to dig into their pockets to put money in to feed people. Like that's, that's a broken society, but 
we can make it better. There's, you know, everything's possible. There's always a choice. And hopefully by getting people to work together now, they'll make that choice in future. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Alex there from Man City Fans Supporting Food Banks. Uh, they've got a GoFundMe page set up for donations at the moment as well if you want to help them out. The best place to get more information is on Twitter. Just search for at MCFC Food Bank on there. Uh, now on this week's Patreon bonus show, we've been discussing some of the cliches that surround City and that come with supporting the club. The full discussion is available for those who back the podcast by $2 a month, about £1.70 in UK money, from patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Just like last week, we're going to give an in-depth taster right here. What's the most typical city thing for you then? When I when I say typical city, what is it that that you go to immediately as the one, the the actual the one that sums it all up? I know the answer for me. Um, it's such a good question because there's there's so many examples. I think maybe my first my first real experience of of what I think of as typical city. Um, would be when I was nine and City got relegated to the third tier despite winning their must-win final game of the season 5-2 in what I seem to remember as sort of glorious sunshine at Stoke. Um, I could be misremembering the weather. But um, yeah, winning winning 5-2 and getting relegated to the lowest point in the history. Um, that's that's probably what I default to, but I'm I'm sure you're probably going to say something that's more typical city than that. Well, I've got a relegation as well. I mean, it's it's interesting that immediately we've both gone to the bad <laughs> stuff. You know what I mean? Because we could we could have gone for for like the title win of of 2012, where mm-hmm. you, like you were saying they looked like they'd messed it up and they'd fought the way back into it, then they won it in in the most difficult circumstances. We could have gone that way, uh, but you went for a relegation, and I've gone for the relegation before that one in in '96, where. Um, <laughs> I think it was false information from the crowd said, I can't remember the teams involved, Coventry were one of them, um, but uh, the three teams that City could catch on the final day of the season, um, all of them drew, which meant that a win for City would would mean that you know they'd climb out of the bottom three. And then they were 2-0 down against Liverpool, they fought back to 2-2, and then Duff information said, oh no, a, a point's enough to stay up. So they start holding it by the corner flag. Yeah, I mean that... <laughs> That is very, very typical city. It's just I can't, I, I can't think of anything that. So, I mean, maybe getting knocked out of the FA Cup by a balloon. That was that was quite typical <laughs> city, I suppose. Do you know when you give the example? I suppose um, after my um, slightly rambling answer at the start of all the things that that typical city could mean, um, really, I suppose what it all boils down to is the those occurrences that when they happen you feel like they could only happen to City that's what it is really isn't it I guess you, you can't and, and I'm sure every every fan of every club must feel that um, that their team puts them through things that, that no other team would do and, and all that kind of stuff but that's I guess that's what typical City is to me it's those lovable things that you think I wouldn't get this experience with another club and maybe you know that's just um because it's the most, it's the closest to home thing. Uh, just finally on typical city, then how has it changed since you were a kid? Well, because it's it's gone from. It used to be that city could go from the sublime to the ridiculous, and now those things are the same. So even in being sublime, city can still be ridiculous. Um, 
and it, it just evolves, doesn't it? So now it's it's higher level. So the most maybe the most recent example of typical like typical city moment I can think of is the uh, the, the Champions League knockout last year, scoring an absolutely thrilling, exhilarating, euphoric last minute goal, and then without kicking a ball, losing the game because <laughs> the most famous incident <laughs> of VAR that had occurred, um, and that absolute high to low in one of the best games of football of sort of at least the last 10 years or so. It was magnificent. Um, that incident that, alone, that Richard. typical city. That incident alone is not typical city. What is typical city about that <laughs> is the fact that the year before, mm-hmm. the Liverpool game, uh, the away leg, there was, I think there was offsides in two of the three Liverpool goals. Uh, city had a penalty that, that should have been given that wasn't given. Uh, they had a, a perfectly good away goal ruled out for for a, a wrong offside. Mm-hmm. Then in the second leg, they had uh, the the second goal right on the stroke of half time was wrongly ruled out again for offside. Um, and everybody thought, ah, oh, well, VAR will be in place next season. It'll be fine. We'll get these decisions then. And then they get then they get knocked out by a tight offside call. That is typical City. Good point. <laughs> yeah, I actually think there's a, there's a more recent one as well, uh, and that's that's defending a league cup uh, for the third time and you know <laughs> making it your own, having one of your best results and performances in the Champions League by winning two one away at, at Real Madrid, uh, looking like you might actually go on and make some ground in the Champions League this season, and then the entire world falling in on itself. Yeah, a good way to make a <laughs> pandemic about City that one. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I've got a skill. It's a skill. <laughs> For a pledge of $2 a month, you can hear our weekly bonus show on a wide range of city topics. There's more details on patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. That's a taster of this week's Blue Moon Podcast Patreon show. For more, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Now, just like last week as well, we're going to dip into our archive of interviews. And often seen as something of a comic character, few can really deny that Gary Cook had a big influence on Manchester City. Never far away from the headlines, the former CEO was instrumental in bringing Sheikh Mansour's investment to Eastlands, as well as signing several players that would go on to lead the club to glory under Roberto Mancini. However, he was forced to resign after a scandal over emails he'd sent over the seriously ill mother of Nader Manua. Back in 2015, I caught up with him and started by asking if it was true that former chairman John Wardle had to help pay the players under tax in Sinawatra. We were in dire straits. Uh, you know, we were, we were shortly about to go into administration. There was a, there was a big challenge ahead. And uh, John is a, is a City fan through and through. And I've, I've been public with this before, is that if it wasn't for John, um, I think we would have been in a much worse situation. And who knows, once you lose control and a football club goes into the hands of administrators, it can be, uh, it can be very challenging. So what, what was it then that, that you saw that kind of revolutionised the club and, and changed it to, to, to make sure it didn't fall into administration? Well, we, uh, well, quite simply, we had to go out and find new owners, and uh, within ten days, um, you know, some of some of the guys that were working with uh, with Shannon uh, Tax in Shinawatra were were posed the question: we were going to have to find some funds. Um, you know, Taxin was having some challenges politically, and it was impacting the football club, and we then had to go and try and sell the football club. And we spoke to you know, Greek shipping tycoons, and we spoke to a few different guys, and, uh, you know, the wind came blowing through, and we were in the right direction when we uh, we made contact with uh, 
with the guys from Abu Dhabi. What was your impressions of, of Dr. Taksin Sinawatra? You know, I, I, of course, everybody remembers, you know, my comments about seemed like a nice guy, and I, and I suppose that if you look at that in the context of some of the issues that he's faced, I would say that's probably a naive thing to say from me. But, but, but you can only judge people on the on the in the on the face value of what you experience. And uh, I I didn't have a political platform. I don't have a political platform, and I wasn't interested in getting involved in politics. My job was to run the football club. And whenever I met with him and spoke to him, he would ask me for my thoughts. I would give them to him, and he would say, "I support your views. Away you go." Um, and then when we sat down and discussed the fact that we needed to sell the football club, he said, OK, then I agree. So so for me, my experience with him was one of, it was cordial, it was it was sensible and it was adult. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't in, interested in his political uh, background. How involved were you in the takeover by Abu Dhabi? There were there was there were many people involved in it, and and there was actually a change of regime in Abu, in Abu Dhabi. If you remember, there was a guy called Suleiman Al Faim, uh, who was running around the world telling him we were going to buy everything if you stood still long enough. It was a chance he might buy you, and so one of the things that we were worried about was the perception. Um, so we went through some changes there. There were several people that we met with. Uh, I was preparing all the presentations and and the virtues of the football club and the ambition of the football club and the and it was really the re- the value between the cost of it and the capability of it right so you could buy Manchester United and you'd have to spend a big number and they already had you were buying the finished product you could buy Roma in in um, in Italy but a lot of money needed investing and the Premier League value was far greater than the Italian League and they were going through some challenges. So it was the combination and the levers that you you have to work out where the value is before you can get to a point where you say this is actually a good proposition. Manchester City was great value for money, a big football club in a big city that was known as a footballing city and uh, you know, when you add all of those, they say that 72% of all businesses, uh, the value is in intangible assets, not necessarily all of the things that you're buying that you can fix and see. And they're actually the things like goodwill and the brand value and all of those things. And I think City fit the bill there. Well, I wanted to ask, I mean, there were rumours at the time that there were other clubs that could have been subject to the, to the Abu Dhabi takeover. What was it about City that made them stand out? I think if, you know, going back to the, the, the earlier question, which is uh, it was great value for money. Um, it was, again, it had all the components. There was a great land proposition surrounding the football club. There was a great city uh, and the chief executive uh, of the city, Sir Howard Bernstein, um, was was very supportive of, of developing the football club. Um so I think it was really uh, that, and it was all of the, the people that were here, the ambition uh, and the commitment and the pride and, and the faith that everybody had had. Um, and I think, you know, you, you, can, you can take something and build it and grow it, but sometimes you can't really, you can't realise a bigger ambition with it. 
And we know of all those football clubs now. That are, some are in the Premier League, and they'll always be mid-table because there's nobody. You know, they're not they're not big propositions, but this one this one was. You had ideas about the Manchester City brand that I don't think anybody else really kind of cottoned onto. Certainly not until more modern times now at the club. What what did you say to people to try, try and convince them that they were buying into the right idea? Uh, yeah, great. I mean. That's a great question because I, I really don't know how we got some of the players to come. I mean, you know, if you ask a footballer why they want to go to a football club, it's to win trophies for success. That's what they really want to be able to do. And that are the great players, that is. And so, you know, when you start to talk to some of the great players around the world and you go Manchester City or Manchester United, Real Madrid, Barcelona... It, it's a clearly a, a challenge, and so part of the part of the issue was we had to overpay. You have to. You can't. You know, people are, when they've got choices, and all things being equal, they're going to go to the biggest and the best. And we weren't. And we have to be realistic about that. And so there were a couple of players who changed the dynamics for us. And obviously, Rubinho was one, but. I always felt Tevez was a good one because that was, you know, that helped us. But really, the two I always hold up in in the highest regard because they they came for the right reasons. Yaya Toure and David Silva. How difficult or easy was it to get them to sign? It was a little easier once we'd got mm, uh, Yaya to agree um, because then a lot of people started to drop after that. It was much easier once we got the big player but this big player wasn't it wasn't all about the money it wasn't all of it it was about him being a catalyst for change and that's what we always told players back to your earlier question one of the things that we sold was do you want to be in a little fish in a big pond or do you want to come here and change the way that people look at Manchester City and that was always a compelling argument and I think yeah 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 he'd been a great player at Barcelona played in the um you know, the Champions League against Man United at centre-half. And, and you know, we convinced him that you can keep being thrown around into different positions at Barcelona because you can fit in as a squad player when people are injured or you can come here and make a difference. And I think he bought into that. Of course, there was several high-profile transfer tussles while you were in, in the chief exec role. Uh, one of the biggest, I think, was, uh, was the attempt to sign Kaká. Um, your words at the time were, I, I think you said something like uh, you felt Milan bottled it. Um, what what do you feel about that transfer now, looking back? Uh, it did it, all of the um, the noise that surrounded our ambition, and it was a representation of our ambition. and And I think if it was a it was a an attempt to try and get one of the biggest players in the world at the time to come to the football club. And there's a realism to knowing that you've got a very, very slight chance. But it was a representation of our ambition. And I think what it did was it made a lot of people go, well, hold on a minute. Maybe these guys are serious. Which impacts the players. It impacts the fans. It impacts the employees. And the world of football was starting to look a little different. All of a sudden, there was a new kid on the block. And really, that's the, that was what we set out to do. Um, and then there's all of the other stuff that created with Berlusconi's it was a political platform and it was challenging and 
all of those things are great learning for all of us. You know, I look back on it now and people go, well, what, what, what was all that about? Hey, learnt a lot. The club learned a lot. And I've actually bumped into Kaka and he said, you know, sometimes I wish I'd come. So we all have our point of view. I was allowed to have a point of view. I was allowed to say they bought it because I thought they did. And I took a lot of stuff personally at this football club because uh, it meant a lot to me. How close was City to actually signing Wayne Rooney? <laughs> well, Wayne's, you know, is 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 a great player, and I, we have a personal friendship with his agent, uh, Paul Stretford. And you know, like anything, um, you'd like to think there was an opportunity for us. Um, I don't think Wayne Rooney is isolated as any one person that wasn't amongst everybody else that, uh, you know, once you start to see the success coming, you are both interested in players, uh, agents are interested in you as a stalking horse, and I'm not so sure which one all of them represent, but I can I can safely say that uh, we thought perhaps we were closer than, than maybe they did. But... But that's irrelevant because you never really know the truth. Uh, and I don't even know the truth uh, in a lot of them. Um, but, uh, but he's a great player. I played, we, I played golf with him previously and he's a great... I mean, you know, if you want players to change the dynamics of a team, Wayne Rooney was one of those guys. And uh, anyway, he seems to have done all right for himself. In terms of your time at Manchester City, what would you say your best decision was? Uh, the people that I hired... Um, I don't think all of them were great decisions in hiring, but I think it was the idea that we built an organisation that was surrounding uh, an ambition and an expectation of greatness. And everybody, we got everybody believing and we got everybody uh, doing the right thing. So the decision was, there are four, in my mind, there are four communities. There are the owners, there's the media, there's the supporters and there's the employees. And you can't please all of them. There's a great saying. Uh, I don't know the recipe for success, but the recipe for failure is to try and please all of the people all of the time. And a lot of people in football, they satisfy the needs of the press and their owners. And they sacrifice the supporters and the employees. But being a big people man and loving people and believing in people because everybody has to get up in the morning and want to do something I went the other way and I said employees and I also said the fans they're the two most important components to being a great football club the owners play a great part and they need to see success the media they have nothing other than extracting value from a football club and there's some great writers out there and some great so it's disrespectful of me to to blanket the entire media but as a model it's about getting a story out of the football club and so I didn't need to satisfy their needs although I did (laughs) inadvertently but to me it was all about making this a great place to work and it was making giving the fans something to cheer about do you have any regrets I have loads, but not only at this football club, about life. Um, I think, you know, there's a difference between um, working 
in a public space and working in a private space. I didn't change who I was. I was still the same person. And I was prone to mistakes. But I think we all should be, because if we don't make any mistakes, we're not trying. So my regrets are some of the mistakes. But uh, I would never, ever sit back and say, well, I never made a mistake, therefore it was much easier and it was much better because I probably wouldn't have been trying hard enough. How do you feel about the situation that surrounded your resignation? Somewhat regretful. Um, It's easy to sit and point fingers and blame others. And and I think that, you know, I, I live every day with with the with the knowledge that there was more than just uh, a, a, an issue between mrs anur and i um, bless her unfortunately she passed um, there was there's there's no excuses and i won't make any for my actions because i'm regretful of them they were poor and they were misjudged um, there were also forces at bay around it that were making it more than it probably needed to be. Mrs. Anur and I, uh, we corrected our differences and we left uh, at a point where we both said to each other, um, I respect you, and she said to me, and I respect you, and we should leave our differences there, and that's good enough for me. And uh, bless her and her family, good people, and... It was something I wish never happened, uh, but it did, and I'll live with that, and I'll regretfully live with that. Do you miss it, being part of Manchester City? Of course. Um, I find it hard to come back. I find it hard to to be here at the stadium. I find it hard to uh, to see the people that you know I worked with for such a long time, and it wasn't a job. It was really a passion. Uh, and when you engage so much of your time and commitment into this and you walk away and you've not got it anymore uh, it hurts and it hurts that you're not at the forefront of it but the reason I took my time out and needed to get away was I was starting to define myself through being a CEO of a football club called Manchester City and I wasn't defining myself by being a father of two Uh, and as a man and uh, that had impact on me at the time and it still does and so I never really I'll never get over the impact that this football club has had on me my family and my personal life and professionally I would never have missed that opportunity personally I wish some of the things that have happened didn't happen Um, and I'll live with that but I, uh, I, miss, I miss it dreadfully. But I'm happy and I've moved on and uh, I feel like it's a bit like a divorce. You miss all the good bits and you forget about the bad bits. And believe me, there were some bad bits. Hear all of our City interviews on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. Gary Cook speaking to me there in uh, 2015. Uh, Richard, when you look back at, at Gary Cook's time at City... How, how do you think of him? Uh, do you know, um, quite fondly, because he um, he was a stepping stone, wasn't he? 
in, in everything that we've become. I mean, he was more than a stepping stone in terms of his influence of getting the takeover done. Um, but in his position, obviously, we've, um, we've had plenty of top-level executives since Gary Cook um, and, and people who have helped move the club on. But, but Gary Cook was so significant in that um, that despite some of the gaffes that he made and obviously the very, very serious one that he made that ultimately lost him his, his job, um, he did a lot of good for City. Um, chief amongst those, um, really selling the club to the Abu Dhabi group. It seems weird when you when you hear him speak about the state that city were in when when he was there and, and selling them to to Sheikh Mansour. It was it was kind of like well we know we're rubbish and we know that we don't have the historical brand that you need, but we can build it and we can piggyback off what United have done. Yeah, that's um, at, at the risk of it's quite brazen, isn't it? It is, and at, at the risk of um, blowing smoke <laughs> your way a little bit here. Um, Go for it. I'm I'm all for this. Yeah, do you know? I thought you might. Be. <laughs> um, that Gary Cook interview is not only one of my favourite things that has been done on this podcast, and therefore by extension that you've done. David. Keep going. Keep going. Um, but it, I'm it's one this. of <laughs> genuinely. It's one of my favourite city-related interviews, and I remember being super impressed and excited when you told when you told us that you had that interview, and I remember making the time to listen to it so not just listening to it as part of my weekly podcast listening but specifically once that was available making the time to sit and listen to it um and if i remember you released it in two parts so doing that two weeks running because i wanted to hear what he had to say because he's been such an instrumental such an important and such a divisive figure um in in city's recent history that i wanted to hear what he had to say and um, you did a great job of, of, of getting the answers out of him. Things oh, that hadn't, and well, fine. <laughs> but things that hadn't been, you know, comments that hadn't been made public publicly before. Things that hadn't been explained, and things like that detail that um, that you're discussing there about how we used United to sell the name of Manchester, and not use that as City being in their shadow, but actually use that of why United's name is a great thing for City. Not, you're going to live in their shadow, not we're always going to be second to these, but rather what they've done has already forged a path for you. Here's why City's perfect. That's one of the, um, oh, clearly I'm paraphrasing, but that's one of the details that has, has always stayed with me. And I still find myself, like when I have conversations with City fans and obviously talking about the past, as you do as a football fan from time to time. Um, Gary Cook's a name that pops up in those conversations, and when they do, that's something that I, I always reflect on, along with the, the story, um, and I hope I'm not throwing forward too much to anything you're going to say, but the, the, the classic story that you got out of him about how he signed uh, Yaya Torre and David Silva, which is, ah, is sadly, just a great... Well, I, I have to make a confession and sadly oh, say that, that that's not in the interview because I couldn't get him to say it. Um, ah, we, we actually ran okay. out of time. What He told me, uh, well, he, he told a supporters group about that 
um, that that we were at. And that was part of what I was going to ask him about, but then we got moved on and I wasn't able to get the question in uh, in time. Uh, the story goes, um, just for those that, that I haven't... I've bored everybody to death with it, but if, if you know, if, if there's anybody out there who's not heard it, uh, the story goes was that um, he wanted Yaya Toure and David Silva to sign. Um, they were both close to signing, but needed a little bit of pushing over the edge. So he told Torre's people that David Silva had just signed, and he told Silva's people that Yaya Torre had just signed, and hoped they both signed. And then, of course, they did. Do you know, I would have... Sw- How memory works, this is where memory fascinates me, because I would have sworn blind that I heard him say that in your interview, and obviously I didn't. No, sadly not, I'm afraid. Oh, I'd like to make it clear at this point as well that... Since we're dipping into the interview archives, what I do every week is I ask the guest who's coming on, in this case Richard, who the, who they'd like to talk about of our archive of interviews. I don't just pick one at random, and I didn't just pick this one <laughs> to make Richard say all those nice things about it. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll vouch for that. That is true. <laughs> uh, now then, um, just back, getting back on topic to, uh, to Cook, uh, what do you think his legacy is at City? Well, I think there's two answers to that. There's the, his perceived like the legacy in terms of perception and how he's sort of viewed for his time at City. And then there's the reality. Um, and, and there's obviously, a, in that particular Venn diagram, there's a, there's a big crossover in the middle part, to be fair. But the, the reality is that he did a whole lot of good um, down to, um, you know, I think he did have the fans in mind when he did... Um, with, with a lot of things that he did, he there's the the famous story of him again, hopefully not apocryphal, but him walking into a meeting of the Premier League chairman or owners, whatever, and and saying what he saw for City, how he saw them being the most successful club in England and one of the biggest clubs in the world, and being literally laughed at by the other uh, chairman and directors. Um, and actually, he made good on that. He played a big, big part in making it happen. He clearly has a great business mind. Um, and I think a lot of the things that he spoke about that seemed foolish at the time have come to pass. And to that point, I think it was Daniel Taylor who had the article with him around Christmas. And as Daniel Taylor said, he's actually, if anything, proven that he was ahead of his time. Unfortunately, there is the, the perception of Cook which is a perception based on reality because it's all based on things that happened, but it's also seen as a bit of a bumbling fool because of the comments that he made um, about Milan bottling it when City tried to pay £100 million for Kaka, which he might still stand by that, and he, he does stand by that, that, um, that they bottled it, but it wasn't a way for such a senior director of a football club trying to go places. It wasn't the right way to behave publicly. Um, there was the incidences of talking at supports clubs about what City were going to do to United and then it falling apart was the one where he referred to us as United instead of City. Yeah, he he inducted Uwe Rosler into the United Hall of Fame. (laughs) That was it. So those things obviously go a long way to skewering his perception and the, the, the other perception of him. And they're not unfair, they happened. And so it can't be denied that publicly he did make some gaffes. But actually, in his day to day job, what he did for City, um, he did a very, very good job. Uh, but the, the other thing that it will always be impossible to get away from is the way it ended. Um, and the email that he sent, although I think it's probably fair to say there was... 
the way that information came out and the way that email leaked, I think, was probably quite unsavoury in itself. It doesn't make the sending of the email right, does it? It doesn't. Um, it doesn't. And without wanting to... I think I've probably said this on the podcast before, without wanting to add too much of a personal touch to this, um, I actually had the pleasure of, of knowing Neda Manua's mother. Not, um, not hugely well, um, but through family... I knew her and I'd had the pleasure of sort of sitting with her a, a couple of games that Nedham was playing. And she was an absolutely wonderful woman. She was she was fantastic. Um, and everything about her, she was just such a, a positive and, and, and warm and nice woman. Um, and she didn't, nobody does, but she, she didn't deserve to have comments like that made about her. Um, and certainly, um, you know, for that to then be, in whatever way it happened, for that to be something that was used politically in the public eye um it was a real real shame time to move on now we're going to finish with ask the panel get your questions in for next week at blue moon podcast on twitter you can email us as well uh through bluemoonpodcast.com um it's it's time for some creative questions richard because uh, obviously there's not a lot going on that's that's topical uh so david harris starts us off uh, if you had to choose the best 11 of the mansour era which manager bought the most players in your 11 well um i'll just name the 11 okay there's one in here that's a curveball. So as ever with these kind, of, with, as ever with these kind of questions, I'm, I'm probably not taking it necessarily in the spirit it was asked, but we'll go with it anyway. Most of it, I think, is pretty agreeable. So in net is Edison. Joe Hart was tempting, but um, Edison is a better keeper, so he, he gets the nod. Right back Zabaleta. Um, Centre back pairing of Company and Lescott. And left-back, I've gone with Kolarov because we've not been blessed with great left-backs, but he could hit a great free-kick. And again, um, pretty lovable character, I think. So that's my defence. Midfield, Fernandinho, David Silva. And then here's my curveball because the obvious other midfield, well, one of the obvious other midfielders to put him is Yaya Torre. But I wanted to take a bit of a future view with this as well, thinking about how good it's going to be to have football back. Um, I'm throwing Phil Foden in just on potential and how excited I am by him. Um, so your Rahim, best team of the Mansour era doesn't include Yaya Torre? <laughs> I told you it was a curveball. I didn't say it was right. <laughs> you see, when, you, when you're so strictly word it as best, clearly um, this is objectively wrong. <laughs> carry on, but, carry on. <laughs> um, uh, Raheem Sterling, Kevin De Bruyne, um, and for another curveball, Nolito. Um, <laughs> no, uh, you'll probably, you'd all guess my striker is Sergio Aguero. Yeah. Uh, well, in terms of numbers then, um, you're pretty evenly spread. There's only there's Guardiola with two. Uh, Pellegrini, Mancini and Mark Hughes all have three each, which I, I guess says that City's recruitment has been quite consistent, maybe. I mean, you also have to wonder, really, with that in mind, did they ever need to get rid of Mark Hughes? (laughs) Would things have not just gone this way anyway? I just said recruitment, you know. I mean, there's no evidence to say they wouldn't have gone this way, but I I call it a hunch. Uh, My my best eleven. I've 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 gone. I've picked it on best eleven of the of of the Mansoor. You're going to have included Yaya, aren't you? Such uh, a such a cliche, David. Yeah, I've gone for for Joe Hart in goal. uh, Back four of Mendy, Company, Laporte, and Zabaleta. Uh, Yaya Torre, David Silva, Kevin De Bruyne, and then a front three of Sterling, Tevez, Aguero. Um, which makes an interesting shout is that Stuart Pearce recruited one of my best 11. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I didn't manage to um, to get a Stuart Pearce signing in mine. What a shame. 
Yeah, I've got I've got one for Pierce, uh, three for Hughes, three for Mancini, two for Pellegrini, two for Guardiola. So it's pretty much the same as yours, apart from uh, Pierce has had one of one of your Pellegrinis. Yeah, I would have chosen Laporte, but I was thinking from a uh, team system that just Lascott was always company's best partner. So yeah, no, I can I can get on board with that, but I just think last season the the pair of them at the end of last season were, were great. They were magnificent. I, Are we what, allowed to pick a manager for this team? I don't see why not, because. We will have the same manager for this because, like me, David, um, you are success orientated, and there is only one city manager in the Mansour era um, who not only has a one hundred percent winning record, but also doubles as Moonchester. So I've <laughs> I've chosen Brian Kidd as my manager. Ah, oh, dearie me! No, it just it, no. He's not even. He, he didn't recruit any players though. So that's. That's I not the spirit of the question, is it? I don't care. <laughs> I, I just don't... want I just want Brian Kidd managing my team. I feel sad for him. Fair enough. I think I'd have Mancini, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'd have Mancini as well in a world where I wasn't allowed Brian Kidd. Um, as much as I love Pep and I'm, you know, Guardiola super fanboy, um, Mancini changed everything. And you knew he, he felt like he, he always had your back as a supporter in a weird way. Um, so yeah, Mancini gets the nod for me. Final question for this week comes from Colin Pritchard on Twitter. Uh, he asks, what do you think of the shocking and shameful actions of the other top 10 Premier League clubs, except for Sheffield United, who have all called for Cass to bar City from the Champions League while they appeal UEFA's decision? Well, it's pathetic. I mean, it's... <sighs> Assuming that that story is all true and at face value, it's it's ludicrous because... If, and and sorry to state the absolutely obvious point, but it's the only way to answer the question, if City are banned during the appeal process and then the ban is overturned, justice hasn't been served, has it? So you would have been banned for a period that is retrospectively decided you shouldn't have been banned for. The only, only acceptable way of dealing and the only just way of dealing with an appeal is that the punishment can't stand whilst the appeal is ongoing it, it doesn't make sense because you you prejudice you, you prejudice any judgment because you're already being sentenced for something that okay you have been found guilty of but you can't whilst that appeal's pending the punishment can't possibly stand it, it just can't it's it, it's a nonsense to me and it's the ganging up of clubs and this isn't to portray city as all the poor little victim and, and all the rest of it. City are a big enough club that can stand up for themselves and are pretty ruthless directors who will do that. But the idea of a host of other clubs ganging up together to cry to UEFA to make the point or the FA, whoever, um, it, it just it, it really, really doesn't sit well. It doesn't seem a right and proper way of doing things. It's very undignified. Um, but what a nice little surprise for Sheffield United to be on City's side <laughs> in in whatever small way they are. That's um, it just seems a very odd way of doing things, and it is so. I think undignified is the the best word I can use for it. It's, it's just not it's an odd way of going about your business. I mean, just to play devil's advocate for a second, uh, if if you were found guilty of a crime I and know you were you're appeal the decision, this. you would still be imprisoned until. The appeal was heard, and also if like if if you are, you're often from work. If you if you're alleged to have done something wrong, you're you're suspended pending investigation. But there's a there's a difference though, isn't there? In that 
I mean, I take your point about crime and being in prison, and obviously that isn't time that you get back. I, I fully get that, but they're not the same situation because missing out on... If you're reinstated into it at a later date, you've, missed, you've still missed an entire competition and, and all of the windfalls that go with that, haven't you? And it presumes... It does presume the guilt uh, that it, it wouldn't make sense to be banned from a competition when you don't know what the outcome of the appeal is going to be, particularly when that appeal is the last is the last route to it. It's a very fixed period of time that the city would be banned for. Um, and so if they're going to be banned for two years, or if it's reduced to one or whatever, that can still be served afterwards and still have the same effect on city. Either way, uh, Sheffield United will be getting a Christmas card, I, I, I suspect. Yeah, I would think <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, right well that's it for this week's Blue Moon Podcast thank you for listening please give us a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends to give us a listen too especially when there's no football to see us through thanks to my guest Richard Burns thank you David if you'd like to hear some more of our discussion about city cliches then you can join our Patreon supporters there's more information on patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast I'll be back next week I'll see you then the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast